and you use your unique entrapment as the vehicle for getting free of entrapment. So as the Gita says, to do someone else's dharma is gonna, not going to work. You have to do your own. You have to see the, the real appreciation and the fun of it is to realize that just where you are with every one of your neuroses and your fears and all your shtick, you are in exactly the right place at this moment from your, from your evolutionary point of view. There are no errors in the game. There's not even a possibility of one. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu Marcus, and I'm back with uh, Ramdas Here and Now podcast. And, uh, you know, I like to do my once-in-a-while check-in with the Here and Now community. And since this is January 2024, I thought it was opportune to check in with a talk uh, that Ramdas gave in uh, 1991 in Los Angeles, not far from where I am right now. And it's around my favorite, or one of my favorites, but this is a subject which is around identity and roles that he, over his many decades of uh, teaching, Ramdas had a focus on the way in which we constantly believe in our stories, identities, and roles, and then try and dump them in a way that is not conducive <laughs> to a balanced uh, lifestyle day to day. Before I get into it, and I promise it's going to be brief, uh, I do want to thank our sponsor, Magic Mind. And, you know, these sponsors we have, and, and they're, they're really important to allow us to to function as a network. You know, many people are involved uh, that are necessary in order for us to provide all of these wonderful podcasts free of charge, of course. And so I really want to thank Magic Mind for their participation. Uh, Magic Mind, if you don't already know, they've been with us for a while. It's a wonderful Alexia, Alexer, how do you say that? In uh, these beautiful two-ounce shot bottles... So um, i just tell you my little story about it quickly. I was sent some samples from Magic Mind when they were thinking of joining us. And before I got anywhere near them, my partner went, wow, I wonder what this is. I'm going to try it. She loved it and drank them all. And I'm going like, what? I had to get a whole new sample package from them so I could get it, an idea of it. And um, they're, they're quite wonderful. I mean, I'm one of the ingredients is mushrooms, uh, and I'm a big fan of, of mushrooms, especially uh, through my experience with Chinese medicine. Um, and uh, one of the immediate effects was this clarity and focus. I, I was very taken by that. Just later, you know, after I, I drank one, not that long after, hours after, I felt this clarity of mind, which given the work that I do and the work we all do, 
uh, it's very and very important to have that presence, isn't it? But one of the things that I was most concerned about, aside from that effect, which uh, was uh, revealing, was how's this going to taste? Because I am so delicate with my taste buds. You know, I shy away from stuff just because of that. And let me tell you, it was great as my partner proved it out because he drank it all up in a few days, a couple of days. Uh, it passed the taste test. Magic mind not only will help you with clarity and with presence and being here now, it tastes good. There you go. And I also want to mention that Magic Mind is offering a wonderful opportunity this month, January of 2024. And you get a month for free when you're subscribed for three months. And uh, that's a pretty good deal. Go to magicmind.com slash Jan, J-A-N, capital J-A-N, Ramdas, all one word. That's magicmind.com slash Jan Ramdas. And the code is Ramdas in caps. So that's a great deal. Please uh, avail yourselves of the opportunity because it's, it's, as I said before, a wonderful, wonderful elixir. So I want to uh, now just give you a little idea of what this episode is about. And, you know, look, as babies, if you, everybody's been around a baby, you know, one, two, three, four, five months, you know, they look like God. You look in their eyes and you see God. I mean, it's amazing. And that's because they come from the undifferentiated atmosphere of no self, what the Buddhists call no self, undifferentiated self. But then, oh God, they got a name and they keep being called this name. It wasn't Raghu for me, it was Mitchell at the time. <laughs> And then who is that? Oh, it's a, I'm separate. There's a some, I'm a somebody that's separate from these people. And I got a name. And we learned our separateness. And that separateness, as Ramdas said, says, veiled over the connection we had to the unity of all things. It's an amazing thing, really, uh, how this all works. But of course, uh, he also says, it's beautiful that your incarnation turns out to be the blueprint blueprint for your liberation. Who would have expected that? You know, pretty amazing. Um, and here's another quote. The predicament we face is that in our zeal as separate entities to find security in a vast world of chaos and unknown, we keep trying to form cosmos or order with our mind by defining what are the boundaries of us and what are the boundaries of this is mine, that's not mine. You know, it's amazing what happens to us. But it's the core uh, uh, at which we uh, address the issues of separateness and isolation that 
happens uh, critically as we get older, especially if it's not addressed. That's the, the beauty of, of the path, that there's a way to address these feelings of, of disconnection that we all have at some point and that we have to transform if we want to be happy, if we want to have a balanced life. Um, and each one, this is the beauty of, the, of this talk, by the way, because I love how he talks about each one of us has a unique entrapment, right? We all have our own brand. Uh, and as the Gita says, to do someone else's dharma is just not going to work. You have to do your own. Um, you have to realize where you're at. What are the constrictions that you have? What are the neurotic tendencies and habitual patterns that you have been following? Each one of us has a different set of those. And then comes the realization I do want to be happy and I do want to be balanced. So how do I take the first steps to be able to recognize? And mindfulness, of course, is a big, big way to address, you know, these, these issues. And, you know, and Ramdas, of course, I mean, he said this so many times and so much over the years. Wherever you are, every one of your neurosis and your fears and all your shtick, which he would say is a nice Sanskrit word, you are exactly in the right place at this moment from your evolutionary point of view. There are no errors in the game. And that's a great thing to realize because we don't, you know, if, if we can get a little bit behind it using that idea that it's all perfect in terms of what we each need to transform out of this separateness, out of the fixed identity and roles that we create. Just knowing whatever those things are and these hardships are, is our way through. That's a, a great, great uh, point. Uh, and as I said, I've been working on this for, for of course, for <laughs> since I first met Neem Karoli Baba and Ramdas uh, all those decades ago. And, and more recently, uh, I've been investigating this because I th with Duncan Trussell, who many of you know. And we've uh, just started having conversations about our own, the way in which what was our unique predicament in terms of the separateness that gets created through roles and identities. And we went back into our childhood and we, we did all these podcasts and just natural talks because we were interested in delving into it and using ourselves as uh, a reflection so other people maybe could reflect as well into their own division, their own polarization inside themselves. Anyhow, we came out, I just mentioned this, it might be useful, I think it's useful uh, and it's an audio book called The Movie of Me to the Movie of We, which Krishnadas coined the movie of me and how we just, everything is a self-reflection uh, from our me, me point of view. And this talk by Ramdas explains it out wonderfully. Anyhow, if you're interested in that, go to movieofme.com. That's my little commercial. 
but let's uh, let's listen to this talk. Uh, it's quite uh, it's not unique. Ramdas talked about this a lot, but this talk in particular is so pointed uh, into a direction that allows us to use these principles to understand how we can get free of identity and roles. And don't forget Magic Mind, okay? Uh, just pop over to magicmind.com. You can absolutely catch all of what it is that this wonderful drink represents, okay? And uh, we shall see you next week or two, something like that. Anyhow, happy to be with you and say hi to everybody. Happy. Happy New Year. H.L. Mencken wrote, Penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. But there it sits, Nevertheless, calmly licking its chops. <laughs> now, if we scratch, I mean, if we go to each person in this room, every person will have a story about a moment, and you of that recognition that things aren't the way they seem. That the conceptual model that you and I became conspirators to about what is reality is actually this fragile, fragile um, veil we put up against the unknown because we're, and if we put it up really out of fear. We make it impermeable out of fear. And for a little while, I just want to talk about the different aspects because it's like, uh, it's a little bit like that story of the blind men and the elephant. And that a group of blind men and women, blind persons, went to visit an elephant and each of them touched the elephant, and then they came back and they were having lunch and they were discussing what an elephant was like. And one of them said, the elephant is very like a wall. The other one fought and said, no, it's not like a wall at all, it's like a snake. Another one said, it's like a tree. And it was clear that each person touched another part of the elephant. And the predicament you and I face is that what it is we know is basically not conceptual. And every time we try to reduce it to a concept of say it's a this or a that, we reduce it by our minds in order to get hold of it. And just in the process of doing that, we try to take away its mystery to make it into something, an object that we can know and control and master. We can't do it because it ends up um, 
being less than what it truly is. Because any concept our mind can create about the mystery is just exactly like the finger that points at the moon. It's not the moon, it's just the finger that points to the moon. And all religions are just the fingers pointing at the moon. Every great saint that has come down and articulated the truth, she or he has done that. They've only reflected the tiniest part of it when they bring it into words or into, or like in music, for example. I mean, when a Mozart listens and some listens to the music of the spheres and then stands aside and down through Mozart comes, I mean, I see Mozart as an incredible scribe writing as fast as he can. And he's listening to this stuff that is beyond his concept, his capability to bring, to change fully into form because to bring it into something which is audible to the human ear is already limiting what it is. And the ear he hears it with is much broader than the human ear. So it's always reductionistic. So every time you hear a truth, it's all a lie. It's not, it's not fair to say it's a lie, but it's only a relative truth. And that's what we learn. We learn that everything our mind creates is just a relative reality. And that's very relaxing because it always seems so absolute the way everybody presents it. What seems to have gotten screwed up is the balance in us, the way I'm experiencing it. It's a balance between, well, Let's see how to say it. That you started out when you were born with this undifferentiated self. There weren't a boundary saying this is me and that's other. That was a something you learned. Now, the fact that you learned it was necessary. And you learned it and it had a genetic origin. It had a environmental origin because your parents all thought they were somebody. And they went, took you into somebody training. I mean, that was part of the culture you lived in. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, a person is fortunate when they're born into a family of yogis. That means, can you imagine being born to parents who don't think they're anybody? They won't suck you into being somebody. But you and I weren't probably born to that family. We were born to a family that thought they were somebody. I mean, really thought it, not just relatively, I think I'll play somebody. They thought they were somebody. And they thought, I'll train my child to be somebody. That's the best thing I can do for them. And the more special you are, the better somebody you are. So you and I got trained into somebody specialness. Because this is a culture of somebody's where your identity is with your individuality, not your identity as part of the unity of things. I mean, it's interesting that people are waking up to their interdependence, while other cultures always lived with their interdependence. The Native Americans always knew they were interdependent. And we're suddenly, wow, we're interdependent. Wow, imagine that. 
physics is right, you know. <laughs> the balance that got off was that we started out with this undifferentiated self and we so well learned, because we learned it emotionally as well as intellectually, we so well learned our separateness that our separateness veiled over the connection we had to the unity of all things. That was the imbalance. Because once we awakened, which is what we're talking about here, to realize you're part of everything, that it's all relative reality, that there's a something behind it all, there is a non-conceptual thing, whether you call it Shema Yisroel, Adonai Elocheno, Adonai Echad, it's all one God, one, whatever, whichever way, whatever metaphor you want to use. You're awakening back into the balance and at first, when you recognize that there's a, a unity behind the diversity, the whole awakening metaphor tends to pull you towards pushing away at the diversity and grabbing at the unity because you've lost it so far and you want to taste it again because when you experience the unity, you feel at home in the universe. Because you are the universe. How could you be not at home? And you're not vulnerable, you're not afraid of death, because what's, where are you going to go? <laughs> but then you realize, somewhere along the way, that to just acknowledge the unity, to acknowledge the non-conceptual part of your identity, to acknowledge your divinity, that itself and to push away your diversity, to push away your incarnation as a separate entity, that's imbalanced too. It's imbalanced the other way. And you then begin to see the exquisiteness of the human incarnate. The potential of, as Christ said, being in the world but not of the world. The potential of being fully yourself as a diverse, unique entity and fully everything. That you and I have the capacity to live on more than one plane of reality simultaneously. And what we do is we first push away, we're trapped into one plane so we think everything else is kook land. You know, flake, floating, la la, la la land. And then we awaken, and for a moment, another plane's reality, and then we say, how did we get stuck in that crap? And we push it away. And then we get high, and we get so high, but it's just a high. It isn't free, it's high. Because as long as you push away the low, you're trapped. Because you've got to go beyond polarities of high and low. Is this all too weird? Is this too far out? I mean, I, no. It's hard to find the, how far it you can go in L.A., you know. <sighs> so one of the things we know is something about the unity that lies behind the diversity. Something we know tells us about the formless that lies, that is within or behind. I mean, all those are just 
metaphors about form and formless. Two sides of the same coin, whatever you want to call that. And what we do is then, at first, as I said, we, when we have been stuck somewhere, and it's so thick and heavy being somebody, isn't it? I mean, will you or won't you? You know, will she marry, won't she marry? Will she divorce, won't she? Will her children turn out well? Did he die or didn't he? That's a good one. I mean, that's one everybody milks for all it's worth, you know. I mean, these are all dramas. These are all human dramas that people take seriously. <laughs> Will there be a crash? Did Bush really know? I mean, they go on and on and on, you know. Will that stain come out? I mean, there are thousands of them. And you, you can notice how you get really riled up, like, my God, will it, won't it? Like, you know, there's thousands of them every day. I mean, you know. Is this traffic going to move or isn't it? Yeah. And as you begin to see your predicament and you want to lighten it up, you start to play with reality. You learn how to play with reality. And you start to learn what is one of the rules of the spiritual game is how to stand nowhere. Because if you stand too far out from it all, you get into that kind of, you're using what's... In uh, Freudian psychodynamic terms, would be called a dissociation defense mechanism. That is, you're pulling back because it hurts too much to stay down there. And so somebody, you know, somebody you love falls over, and you say, "Karma." (laughs) (laughs) And there's a kind of a remote, you know, oh, I see through it. Oh my God! It's known as the spiritual up level, and it's a real cheap shot. But then you begin to be aware that your heart's very cold in that circumstance. Something's wrong because you're really off, you know, all off by yourself by that scene. And then you learn how to flip it so that your, your heart is open and yet also you're seeing through it. Well, one of the masters of that game in our society, and there are some masters, was a delightful being named Groucho Marx. And here's the way in which you flip the mind and play with the mind. One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Watch what it does to your mind. Then we tried to remove the tusks, but they were embedded so firmly we couldn't budge them. Of course, in Alabama, the Tuscaloosa 
We took some pictures of the native girls, but they were not developed. <laughs> but we're going back again. <laughs> so part of what we are awakening to is that there are many planes of reality. This, I'm just giving you a metaphor for conceiving of it. It's not planes, there aren't like elevator stages, you know, third floor ladies' garments and men's shoes, you know, it's not that kind of thing. All the astral causal, all that stuff, that's just conceptual structures of something that's much more interesting because it all is planes and it isn't, it's all simultaneous. It's all right here now. There's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do. You did it already. This whole thing is of going somewhere is a hype. The whole idea of a journey is uh, absurd. You finish the journey, you realize you were there all the time and there was nowhere to go. And still you take a journey. And that's the fun of it. As Don Juan said, you huff and you puff and you make believe it matters even though you know that it doesn't. <laughs> so we'll be very serious about our work. So what we seem to know is that there are many planes and that actually we begin to find out that who we really are exists simultaneously on all of them. And the predicament is that some of, our, some of that part of our identity, which is known by our senses and our thinking mind, That is, those parts of our identity that we can objectify, since you sense something and you think about something, those parts have fascinated us so much that they are, loud, they are like loud trumpets that have overwhelmed us so that we haven't heard what the Quakers call the still small voice within, which is that part of ourselves which is not object but which is subject, which is not knowable, it is just beable. Like, for example, one of the techniques for getting at that is a technique that's expounded by Ramana Maharshi, who's a great, great Indian saint. And he was a natural, I mean, he didn't go do Puja and meditate. He didn't take retreats. He didn't. He was 17 years old. He was studying for his high school in his uncle's study, and he suddenly thought he was going to die. And his karma, he was such an old being, whatever that means, that he lay down on the floor of his father's uncle's study and he thought, all right, let me die. And he experienced himself dying and going to the burning gut and being burned, and then he saw he was still here. And something shifted in his consciousness at that moment. And um, shortly thereafter, he left home and he was pulled towards this mountain in southern India called Mount Arunachala, a little hill. And he went and sat in a cave there for six months and people didn't know what he was. I mean, he was just another one of those sadhus sitting in a cave. 
And uh, sometimes they came and put rice things between his lips. And then he slowly came back in a normal consciousness. And he was one of the great saints of India for 44, many years after that. And when people would come to him, he'd just say, simply ask yourself, who are you? Who am I? So when you say, who am I? Everything you answer, I mean, try it. Who am I? I am what? I am, I am a woman. I am an American. I am a seeker. I am God. I am dressed in blue. I am old. I am concerned. I am happy. And stretch it any way you want to go. Every descriptive word you put in, I am, is a limiting condition. It's like imprisoning yourself in a little room, saying, as long as if you start to think, I am only that. Because every one of those, I could say, yeah, you're that, but you're also that, and you're also that, and you're also that. The predicament we face is that in our zeal to, as separate entities, to find security in a vast world of chaos and unknown, we keep trying to form cosmos or order with our mind by defining what are the boundaries of us and what are the boundaries of this is mine. That's not mine. My car, my home, my... Mm. Then I feel safe. I'm inside my car. Push the locks down on my car. <laughs> I am safe. It's mine. Me. I am in me, and out there is that. And that is very threatening, but I'm safe. But then you get old and you start to die. And then you say, this body. You start to say, that body. <laughs> I am in here, and that body is crumbling. It's getting scary. But the denial is of what is the, just the I am, not the I am that. It's like the flashlight which you shine on this and that and you say, oh, it's that, oh, it's that, oh, it's that. But the one thing the flashlight can't do is shine on itself. So that you never see that which is seeing. And so that part of you that is just the seer, the seer, the wisdom, the source, the subject, you never notice it because it's not noticeable. It's just beable. <laughs> 
realizing this, what the journey becomes is one of extricating yourself from your definitions of yourself. And that's what meditation is about. It's a process through concentration or mindfulness or, or confrontation or whatever the techniques are, whether it's Zen or Vipassana or contemplation or whatever it is, to take the mind beyond itself, to get you out of thinking your thinking mind, because thinking mind only takes objects, and your thinking mind is only a little part of the mechanism. The predicament is you got so hooked on the world that is known through the thinking mind and the senses that you and I lose that part of us that is not knowable by that. That we sometimes call the intuition, we call it the heart wisdom, we call it, there's another way of knowing the universe. But we learn not to trust it in the West because we got so enamored of our prefrontal lobes, of knowing what we knew because it's so much power and control when the mind knows what it knows. We can go to the moon, we can do mm, I mean, we're living in a world that is with this intellectual arrogance about a lot of junk. You know, isn't that far out? And we all collectively buy into it because we're all separate and frightened. But who we are back behind all that, since it is not object, it is subject, it is not a thing. What that source is, is not a thing. Now, the predicament is that all things, as every mystic tradition tells you, in Buddhism it's called anicca, trans, the transitory nature of things. Christianity, Christ says, lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt. Don't get caught in that which changes. The, but the, you see that all things change. Find me a thing that doesn't change. All things change. The fenders of my car are rusting. My body is decaying. I mean, look at this beautiful 60-year-old hand. It's getting to look like my father's hand. It's a little puffy and it's got aging spots and the veins are starting to stick out. It's like a work of art. It's taken me 60 years to cultivate that hand. <laughs> it's changing. It isn't the hand of a 40-year-old. It's the hand of a 60-year-old. And my moods change. Like I can say to you, think of the beauty and the grace of us being here together. And something happens inside of us. And then I can say, think of the people now. Think of the Kurds, petrified, panicked, grabbing for food. Think of the people in Bangladesh, just think of all the people now. Think of the 35,000 women today who will watch their babies die of starvation in a world in which there is 
plenty of food. Think of that. And your heart aches. And you can watch yourself one mood and then another emotion and then another emotion and another emotion. And it's changing all the time. And then you ask the question, is there a part of us that doesn't change? And the answer is yes, but you couldn't call it a part because if you call it anything, it changes because things change. So behind that which changes or within that which changes because the term beyond, behind or within are all concepts. Bloop. <laughs> there is an unchangingness. It's like figuring ground. To rest in that in us which is unchanging allows one to be with that which changes without freaking. Be with that which changes, which is death, sickness, old age, loss, fame, shame, pleasure, pain, loss, gain, da da, all the polarities. It allows you to sit right behind it and say, ah, loss. Just lost my whole empire. Fascinating. <laughs> my, my, cancer. Isn't this going to be interesting? Instead of, oh, my God, cancer. And that was the, that was the wisdom that's the perennial philosophy. That's the thing that the mystics constantly have touched and learned to dwell within is that which lies behind form. And then they learn to be in form and not in form. So that who you see up here, you may think is Ramdas, and you may project into me any qualities your mind wants to do. That's your problem. My job is not to be caught by your mind. Because who I am is not any of this. This is, as I usually say, a renter Ramdas. It's a this is a form that it's coming through. This isn't it. I drive an MG, but I'm not the MG. I just drive the MG. Well, this body is a vehicle. I'm not this vehicle. I am it and I'm not it. To say that I'm not it is a lie and to say that I am it is a lie. The Tao Te Ching talks about that which is behind form. They call it elusive and say that one looks but it never appears. They say that indeed it is rare. Since one listens, but never a sound. Subtle, they call it. And say that one grasps it, but never gets hold. 
These three complaints amount to only one which is beyond all resolution. At rising, it does not illumine. At setting, no darkness ensues. It stretches far back to that nameless state which existed before the creation. Describe it as form yet unformed, a shape that is still without shape, or say it is vagueness confused. One meets it, it has no front. One follows it, and there is no rear. If you hold ever fast to that most ancient way, you may govern today. Call truly that knowledge of primal beginnings the clue to the way. Now, what I just gave you was not only the content of that, but that was a method. The method is to find the beings who have spoken about that mystery, about the edge of the mystery, and hang out with them. And play with the enigmas, play with the things that the rational mind can't handle like Lao Tzu and Chang Tzu and Ramakrishna and Ramana Maharshi and the Buddha and Christ and Allah, I mean, Muhammad and, and on and on and on and on. Kabir and Rumi and Hafiz and St. Teresa and, and the Baal Shem Tov. And, oh, oh, I mean, it's, it's the Mishpocha, it's the... It's the family, it's the people that say, hey, it's not like you think it is. That's just a method of every day hanging out with those books and just picking up one and reading a little paragraph just to keep reminding you. That's a whole method right there. In a way, it's the method of what's called jnana yoga, which means the method of using the mind, the intellect, to bring you to that which is beyond the intellect. It's using the mind to beat the mind. And just one more thing that we, we begin to appreciate as we start to awaken. And when we ask ourselves, if all this is true, what are we doing here? How did we get caught in this absurdity? What are we doing in this illusion of separateness? What is the meaning of incarnation? Why did it all start? I mean, the minute you start to ask those questions, that's part of this process.
And what seems to be required, since that which asks that question, which is the analytic rational mind, can't know the answer, because like it's a subsystem that can't know the meta-system that lies behind it. There's an extraordinary appreciation that even though you can't know the answer, you can start, you can devote your life to approaching the answer. That there is an appreciation that incarnation, or what would be called karma, is a blueprint for your own awakening. You can call my life, my, my karma, my incarnation, my curriculum. It is a set of life experiences which you're creating, because how you see reality and how I see reality are different realities, and the fact that yours is different from mine aren't by, isn't by chance, it's by karma, and that karma turns into your dharma. That means the stuff that's given to you becomes your path. And you use your unique entrapment as the vehicle for getting free of entrapment. So as the Gita says, to do someone else's dharma is gonna, not going to work. You have to do your own. You have to see the, the real appreciation and the fun of it is to realize that just where you are with every one of your neuroses and your fears and all your shtick, you are in exactly the right place at this moment from your, from your evolutionary point of view. There are no errors in the game. There's not even a possibility of one. Because most everybody hides in, if it only weren't for this. And even hiding in that is perfect. <laughs> There's no way. Till finally, ah, okay, this is it. Now, what have I got? Well, this neurosis should be interesting. How will I work with this one? Instead of, let's get rid of this neurosis so I can get on with it. It's too beautiful. It's too beautiful that your incarnation turns out to be the blueprint for your liberation. Who would have expected that? I mean, Judeo-Christian technique all teach that it's an error. It's some falling from grace. It's some really, some abysmal thing full of lust and greed and fear and hatred. Those are the stepping stones of the path to enlightenment. Greed. The yoga of greed. Yeah. Lust. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Till, right, and this is it. <laughs> or, yeah. But then the recognition that all the desires and motives that are in your unique game, that are bringing you to something, it's always the same something. It's a certain feeling of well-being, a certain feeling of, yeah, I'm at home. Oh, whew. 
the new car, the making love, the bouillabaisse, the, the good diagnosis, the whatever it is. It's, oh, yes. Mm. And for a moment you feel, mm. but it changes. <laughs> you remember the king that was going to kill the, uh, a tribe of people? And the tribe came and they said, is there anything we can do to prevent you from killing all of us? And he said, if you can come up with something that when I'm sad will make me happy and you've got overnight to do it and the wise men all gathered and then they formed a ring and they gave him a ring and the rings had inscribed in it and this too shall pass and he said ah oh, that's very wise of course what he didn't recognize is it works the other way too god this is wonderful it'll pass See, that's part of the wisdom. If you cling to the ah, you're going to get stuck with a ugh. It's just another polarity. If you try to milk the game for pleasure, you're investing in displeasure or pain. Beyond pleasure and pain, what is there? There is a quality of happiness that embraces pleasure and pain. There is a quality of being that embraces Bangladesh, the Kurds, the new baby being born, the rose blooming, the joy, the joy, the joy of all of it, all at once. Ah, yes, it's the moment. It's the present moment. It's dying into the moment of fullness. That's what our game is about. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.